songs, great words, and good singing. Thank you for your energetic singing. It is a sign of good health and joy when God's people sing like you sang in this service. Well, I'm going to ask you to turn for the last time in the series to Romans chapter 8. And I say that with great sadness uh, because this series is coming to an end. But if you'll notice the banner that is outside the auditorium, on the upper right-hand corner of that banner, in subtle letters, are the words, Spring Series. And I had the designer put that word, Spring, on purpose to hold me accountable if I went any longer into the summer, then everyone would know I'm out of bounds by preaching on a series longer than I committed to. But it gives us a chance to move on to other things. And as you might, might remember, uh, back in January when I first began this series, I challenged you to memorize Romans chapter 8. And so we had uh, two memorization tracks, uh, a, mem- a track that took us to the end of 2019 and then one that took us to the end of the spring, and several of you took that challenge. And I want to commend you for that. It is important to hide God's word in our hearts. And uh, some of those who took that challenge uh, were willing to actually quote parts of Romans 8 to you this morning. And so I'm going to ask uh, Kim and Krista, Adia, and uh, Travis, if you'd come. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, quote these uh, verses to you and take them section by section. And I hope that as they, as they give these words to you, the words of God that they have committed to memory, that you would allow the, the full impact of God's word just to wash over your hearts as you consider these truths that we have learned the past few months as they quote them to you. Now, just so you know, it's different to quote something and memorize something on your own than it is when you're quoting it in front of people, just so you know. It's a, it's a totally different thing. And so for their safety, for my safety, I should say, I have put a, the text of the chapter in front, and there's no shame in looking down, uh, but uh, these people have, and, and others, not just them, uh, others have committed this to memory, and so we'll begin with Adia. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh... 
you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is Romans 8. And that is the message that we have loved to listen to and to study and to memorize. And that is the passage that I want to direct your attention to. I want to thank this group of people for quoting this to us and encouraging us in that way. They could return to their seats. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the joy that it has been these past few months, these few weeks, too short of a time, it seems 
to soak into the truths that we so desperately need to remind ourselves that in all the trials of our lives and even in our struggle with sin, there is a, a power that is greater than our own. There is a love that conquers our greatest fears, that turns our deepest terrors into the highest triumphs to bring about our greatest good and your glory. And I pray that we once again would be reminded of this so that we would worship you and obey you and love you and live lives that glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a, a road around the coast of Virginia that I've been on, and it leads to an island. And instead of a bridge going from the mainland to the island, there's a tunnel. And approaching that island it's not obvious that the road goes to the island. It looks like you're going on a road that just will dip right into the ocean. And I remember the first time I was driving on that road, I was thinking, but what about the water? <laughs> There's a story that John Bunyan tells in his allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, in which the main character, Christian, is supposed to approach a, a palace that he's going to stay in. And on both sides of the walkway leading up to the stairs of the palace are these two ferocious lions. And he's supposed to go through the doors of the palace and he's thinking, but what about the lions? They were on chains, by the way. You know, I think that we have these circumstances in our lives where we, we, we think, okay, I, I, I think there's a path ahead, but what about, what about this? I mean, what about my, my sickness, or what about my child's diagnosis, or what about our financial circumstance right now? What about the struggle of the relationship that I'm in right now? What about my loneliness? What about this, this pain from the past that I continue to struggle with? And these kinds of what-abouts, what about this, what about that, they can crush us, they can cause us to doubt. As we know, Romans 8 is a chapter on assurance and the very fact that we need assurance implies that there are things in our lives that would threaten to undo us, threaten us instead of allowing us to be more than conquerors. I had you turn to Romans chapter 8, but I would like you to turn back to chapter 5 because this section on assurance that culminates in chapter 8 actually begins in chapter 5. In chapter 5, in verse 1, Paul writes this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to these words, and as you know, what you know of Romans 8, connect them with this, these words here. Through him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our what? In our sufferings. And here is the topic of suffering that is finished in chapter 8, is begun here in chapter 5, in which Paul says, admits, yes, you've been saved. Yes, you have peace with God. Yes, God has, has, has brought you into a relationship with him. But what about my suffering? And so when we go to chapter 8, we find that addressed. Not only our suffering, but what about our struggle with sin? 
Yes, you and I are believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, but so often we find ourselves struggling with sin, don't we? And that's why the culmination of what Paul has been saying ever since chapter 5 comes to a head in chapter 8 in which he gives us this declaration that we have rejoiced in week after week. There is therefore now what? No what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The chapter begins with no condemnation and it ends with what? No separation and embracing us with no condemnation and no separation is a chapter of assurance that if you are in Jesus Christ, your relationship with God is secure. And it's a security that is sufficient to smother our deepest doubts and most frenzied insecurities. This is the power of God's word. This is the message of Romans 8. Another thing that we've learned about this chapter is that it emphasizes and focuses on our relationship with God, God's Spirit. Because if you look at chapter, you're in chapter 8, look at verse, verses 1 and 2. He makes this declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to explain it. For, that's a word of explanation. Kind of like, we're going to get into the vehicle of assurance But God wants us to lift the hood and see the engine. And what's the engine? It is the Spirit of God that is motivating and allowing the assurance that we can have in Jesus Christ. He says this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. How do you and I know that there is therefore now no condemnation? It is because God's Spirit has taken the chains forged between you and sin and death, and He's smashed them, He's broken them, He's given you life, He sets you free from the law of sin and death, as it says here in Romans 8 too. And then He goes on to explain what our life in the Spirit is. And, and the, the first major section of Romans 8, beginning in verse 1 all the way to verse 30, is emphasizing our relationship as believers with the Spirit of God, life in the Spirit. And what I want to do this morning is review these main chunks of Romans 8, these main sections to see what implication they have for our lives. Okay, given the fact that we have God's Spirit, as the grounds and motivation of our assurance... How are we supposed to live? And we see in the first section that it is the, He is the Spirit of life. Beginning from verse 1 to verse 13, it is the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit gives us new life. That's going to be the first section, the first division of this sermon. The second one is the, He is the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit confirms our adoption as God's children. And third, He is the Spirit of glory. The Spirit prompts our longing for our coming glory. Now, these are facts. What I'm going to teach to you and preach to you are facts, but they are facts that mean something. Like a green light at an intersection is a fact, right? It's a fact that it's green. But that it's green means what? Green means what? go, all right? Now, these facts are not meant to just live on the dusty shelves of our brains. They are meant to inform our attitudes and our actions. And that's what I want us to see here this morning. So first of all, 
the Spirit gives us new life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has given you life. And you see this in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why is it that we have been enslaved before we were in Christ to this law of sin and death? Because as Paul proved in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all under the just condemnation of God because of our sin, and the wages of sin is death. We have this, we, we are weighted down by our sin that leads to death. That is why it is so necessary, if there's going to be hope at all, for something to break us from this death, which is exactly what Jesus Christ does. And the Spirit activates that in our lives. There is no way that anyone can fulfill the law of God apart from the Spirit of God. Many people have tried. People try to find fulfillment and satisfaction. They try to justify themselves by themselves. It never works. That's why I like this this little rhyme that says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The law just tells us what to do, but it doesn't give us the power to do it. That's what the law of God does. It says, here commands, now go ahead and you need to do it, but it doesn't give us the ability to do it. That's why verse 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. All right, what you and I could not do in and of ourselves, that is, please God by fulfilling the law, God says, okay, I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to send Jesus Christ to live a perfect life on your behalf, die on the cross so that you, he bears your punishment. What you could not do, I'm going to do for you so that by believing in him, you can have new life. That's how God frees us from the law of sin and death through the Holy Spirit. And that means that we have, we're totally different. We have a different mindset. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. That gives us a totally new way of thinking. That means our priorities are going to be totally different than the priorities of a person who is still chained to the law of sin and death. It means the way that the things that you decide about your weekend and about your job pursuit and about relationships, they're going to be totally different because you're not bound by the law anymore. You're not trying to achieve your own righteous standing before God. You have it. You have the new life in Christ. It gives you a different mindset, but it also gives you a different destiny. That's what we read in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, and one day, as a natural consequence of sin, our bodies will die, yet even though our bodies will die, God will give life to us because of His Spirit. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, restating the same thing. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So here's what's going on. Because we have new life in the spirit, we have a new mindset and we have a new destiny. Our mindset is set on the things of the spirit, that is things that are not bound by finite time, and our destiny is eternal life with God. So that's the fact. 
What does that mean for us, those of us who are in Christ? Well, look at verse 12. So then, so then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. What does that mean? It means that before you came to Christ, you had no option but to live a life of sin. But now you're not obligated to do that anymore because you have new life in Christ. You have new life in the Spirit, and you can actually obey God like you should. And you're not under obligation to obey sin. So let me ask you a question. Believer, are you living as if you are free from the debt of sin? Or are you continually paying a debt to sin as if you owe it anything? And a person who is a renter who moves from one location to to another, from one landlord to another, has no obligation to pay any rent money to his old landlord. Like like sin was an old landlord. We don't have any obligation to, to pay it anything anymore. The question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are we putting sin to death in our lives? This is not, let me clarify, this is not an attempt to earn salvation. This is because we have salvation in Christ that we are motivated to do the right thing. But because we have new life in Christ, we want to live lives of holiness. You know what, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me tell you this. When the Bible describes the Christian life, it doesn't describe it like, Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. That's not the Christian life, okay? What kind of metaphors do we have for the Christian life? A war, a race, a boxing match. Like every day you are either giving sin a blow or sin is giving you a blow. Sin is like a baby anaconda. It may be manageable as a baby, but it will grow up and it can crush the life out of you. So baby sins want to become big sins. Lust wants to become adultery. Greed wants to become theft or oppression. A bitter thought wants to become abandonment. Abuse, doubt wants to become atheism. Baby sins want to grow up to become big sins. And that is why we have this verse that is so sobering and at the same time so motivating. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Believer, you must be killing sin in your life. But you only do it because you have life in Christ. Are you fighting sin? You have new life. If you're in Christ, you have new life in the Spirit. He is the Spirit of life. Second, 
the Spirit confirms our adoption as God's children. You see this in verse, beginning in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, what does it mean that we have received the spirit of adoption? It means that the Spirit is the one who confirms the adoption in our lives, and he is the one who reminds us and prompts us to call out to God as our Father. And so when we cry, Abba, Father, this is a cry of confidence, but it's also a commitment to obedience. You see this, that in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How is it going to be evident that you are led by the Spirit of God? How has it become evident that you are a son or daughter of God? It is as you live in obedience to God. Personally, I love when I see people, I love noticing family resemblances. Do you do that? You notice how someone, a child, favors his or her mother or father, and and you can begin to see between grandparent and parent and child how the the family similarities. The question that we should ask ourselves is, as sons and daughters of God, is there a family similarity? Are you, would people be able to tell by looking at your life that your heavenly Father is loving? Would people be able to tell by looking at your life that your heavenly Father is holy, generous, merciful, patient, caring? Is there a family resemblance? That is the whole point of calling God Abba, Father. We, we call him that. It's a cry of assurance, but it's also a commitment to obedience, to live as sons and daughters of God. It, it is one thing for us to delight in the assurance, the, the assurance, the spirit-prompted assurance that we are sons and daughters of God, but, but the essential thing also is to live that way. It is to live in such a way that reflects that person's heavenly father must be one who is loving and kind and merciful and generous and just in every way because that's the way she's trying to live. That's the way he's trying to live. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. It means to bear the fruit of the Spirit, which bear evidence that we are sons and daughters of God. The Spirit confirms our adoption as God's children. And the question we need to ask ourselves, the green light that tells us go is, are you living as a son of God? Are you living as a daughter of God? So that family resemblance is apparent to all. Let me put it another way and make an application to to Trinity Baptist Church, those of us who are a part of this ministry. Suppose the people of Concord, New Hampshire, or of Pembroke or Loudoun or Bow or Dunbarton, suppose they formed their conclusions about Jesus based on your actions. What kind of Jesus would they know? And yet you and I are the body of Christ, the living Bible that these people will read. 
We are the pillar and ground of the truth, the hands and feet of Jesus. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. People don't put a light under a basket, but they put it in a prominent place in a room so that all can see. And this is what Jesus is saying, that we should let people see our good works so they could glorify our Father who is in heaven as we bear similarity to Him. You have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you, believer in Jesus Christ, have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That gives you assurance, but it also motivates you to obedience. Yes, the spirit, he's the spirit of life. He gives you new life in Christ. He is the spirit of adoption. But third, he is the spirit of glory and he prompts our longing for that glory. He indeed prompts our hope and trust and our joy in God's good plan for us. And we see this beginning in verse 18. When Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? With the glory that is to be revealed to us. And here Paul transitions from this this idea of the Holy Spirit being our the, the, the one who confirms our adoption as sons to bringing up the topic of our suffering and saying that our suffering right now doesn't even compare with the glory that is to come. And it is the Spirit of God who is reminding us constantly that there is a coming glory. This, this is not what you were ultimately meant for, the Spirit says. You have a heavenly Father, and you are created for a destiny that transcends this existence. As believers in Christ, you know that. You know that because the Bible says that it is the Spirit who is within you that prompts you to groan and to long for Christ's likeness in your life. He is the one when you sin that convicts you of that sin. He is the one that when you speak a word of unkindness pricks your conscience and says that's not the way a child of God should be speaking. He is the one that whenever you do something that is outside the boundaries of God's will for you, encourages you and urges you to come back. He is the spirit that is telling you this is not who you are. This is not what you are ultimately meant for. You're meant for a glory so great that it has the ability to eclipse your present suffering. That's why Paul calls the Spirit the first fruits. Look at verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What are first fruits? We talked about this several weeks ago. The first fruits are that guarantee that there is a bountiful harvest to come. I like to think of the first fruits as. As maybe a, a dad in, in a farming family, he bursts through the kitchen door and his arms are loaded with ripe ears of corn and he dumps them on the table and he says, here it is, the, the very first ears of corn and there are acres and acres and they're just about to be ripe, but this is the first fruits. It is both a foretaste and a guarantee of the glory to come. That's what the Spirit of God is for us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit within you that is actually telling you, assuring you that there is something even greater come. It's like the Christmas Eve present you get to open up before Christmas morning. It's like the down payment. It's the guarantee that, that you, you get some of it now, but 
The rest is yet to come. That's what the Spirit is for us, the first fruits of the Spirit. And what's going on in, in your life that reminds you this is the Spirit is making you more like Jesus so that the more you become like Christ, the more you bear the fruits of Christ's likeness, the more you want to be perfectly like Jesus. And it is that for which we groan. You know, there are some delights that once you experience them, you're done with them for a little while, like cotton candy. Okay, that was fun. But there are other delights that the more you taste of it, the more you want it. And the more at the same time, strangely, it satisfies Isn't that what the psalmist meant in Psalm 34 when he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. When you you begin to taste and see the goodness of the Lord, you want it more. Why? Because you're not the sort of person that was meant to be satisfied by limited things. You're not the sort of 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 creature whose, whose hole in your heart can be filled by a career or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or children, or grandchildren, or a bigger house, or whatever it is that you may be seeking to fill your, your, your void with. Only an infinite God can fill your heart. Why? Because, as Ecclesiastes says, he has put eternity in the heart of man. And only by becoming like Jesus Christ can you perfectly glorify God like you were meant to. And it is that future glory that you can say even in your deepest sufferings that they cannot, your sufferings cannot compare with the glory that is to be revealed to you. Because nothing can, nothing can rob you of that. And that is the Spirit of God prompting you telling you about God's perfect plan, His guaranteed plan to make you more like Jesus. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes we feel so crushed by our pain and suffering, we don't even know how to pray. And when all we could do is groan, the Spirit interprets those groans to God in prayers that are guaranteed to be answered, because really what a believer longs for is that he or she will be perfectly like Christ. And it is that that is the outcome of God's plan in in verse 28 of chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. It is the good of being conformed to Jesus Christ that God is orchestrating every event in your life for your good and His glory. That's why Paul writes that in verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, there's our word, glorified. The Spirit is the one that prompts our hope and our trust and our joy in God's good plan for us, which is that we would be like the moon does to the sun, reflects and bounces off the rays of God's glory. There is no other satisfaction apart from that. 
There's, another, there's no other fulfillment apart from that. You can't get it anywhere else but through Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer in him, that is what God is doing in your life. You may look at your life right now and you're thinking, I can't figure things out. The puzzle of my life seems scattered and there are many pieces that don't seem to fit. This is what we reminded ourselves when we looked at verse 28, is with God there are no wasted pieces. There's nothing that doesn't fit because God's power is so, God's love is so powerful that he could take even your deepest terrors and transform them into your triumph so that you, through God's love, can be a more than conqueror. This is only true if you're in Christ. And then the rest of Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, is a celebration. It's a celebration of what it means that God is for us. As I reflected back on this chapter and our journey through it as a church, I thought it would be helpful for us to consider several questions. Some questions that we should answer on a personal level to determine how deeply we are being moved and impacted by this. These are questions only you can answer. I'm just going to give these questions to you. Don't need to worry about writing them down. Just think about them. You don't even need to worry about trying to remember them. But if there is one in particular that just grabs you, that may be a one that you need to pray about and think about. First of all, and I think most importantly, are you believing in Christ? That's a question you need to answer for yourself. Are you believing in Christ? You may be a visitor here with us this morning. Or you may be one that just comes in and out and are not really sure about what these things are. All of these, all of this assurance is given to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. It's not, it's not given for people who have tried to earn their salvation by doing good things. It, it is for people who have abandoned their own good works and said, there is nothing in me that is worth, worth uh, God's, uh, God's merit. It's only in Jesus Christ. And that's the question you must ask yourself. Are you believing in Jesus Christ? Has there been a time in your life when you have turned from your sin and turned from your own efforts and put your trust in Jesus because he died on the cross for you? And by believing in him, the Bible tells us that you can be right with God. My believing in Christ, that's the first question. Here's the second question. For believers, am I setting my mind on the things of the Spirit or on things that won't last. What informs your priorities? We find very clearly in Romans chapter 8 that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So here's the question. Do you set your minds on the things of the Spirit? Do you let eternal things inform your priorities? Third, Am I putting sin to death in my life or am I playing with it? The spirit of life 
is the one who prompts you and reminds you that you're a child of God, tells you you're under no obligation to sin, but are you putting sin to death in your life or are you playing with it? Fourth, am I living as an obedient, love-motivated son or daughter of God? Or am I living begrudgingly or half-heartedly in my relationship with God? The Bible tells us that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, and we did not receive the spirit of fear to fall back into slavery, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you're crying, Abba, Father, are you living as Abba, Father? Am I living as an obedient, love-motivated son or daughter of God, or am I living begrudgingly or half-heartedly? And fifth, and finally, am I rejoicing in God's good plan for my life to make me more like Jesus? Or do I find myself wishing for something different? Know that throughout the course of this series, As I've preached on verse after verse, I've talked with many of you who are going through deep trials. And I've had the joy of hearing many of you tell me, I'm going through this and it's making making me long for heaven more. It's it's humbling me, showing me my weakness. It's showing God's strength. Like those are indicators that a person is taking Romans 8, 28 and 29 and saying, that's mine. This is God's good plan for my life. Is God doing that work in your heart too? Will you rejoice in God's plan for you that he's working all things for good, not just as you define good, but so that you would become more like Jesus? Am I rejoicing in God's good plan for my life to make me more like Jesus? Or do I find myself wishing for something different? And these questions, my friends, will help us know whether we are deeply applying this passage of Scripture to our lives so that we, through the love of God and through the truth of His Word and through the power of the Spirit, can say we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Let's bow our heads and pray together. In just a moment, Pastor Kyle will come and lead us in a song. It's good to have this time of quietness, these moments, and when we just think, we get so busy, right? We hardly have time to just think. It's important, though. One of those questions, really informed by Scripture, prick you, jostle you somewhat. If it did, God is is here for you to pray to. You could pray to God anywhere, but you should pray to God right here, right now. There's something that you need to turn away from. We call that repentance, to, to turn away from something that is, is not what God wants, to turn to God. If there's something you need to repent of, then do it. If that first question that I asked, are you believing in Jesus Christ? If that's not in place, nothing else can be. Maybe that's what you need to do. And if that's the case... Find a pastor here. Talk to me in the foyer right after this service, and we'd love to pray with you and to show you how you can know that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, 
Let's let this chapter shape our lives. Our Father, I pray that you'd continue to work in our hearts as we sing to you the truths of this song and as we confess to you our need for you. I pray that you would be glorified in our lives as we become more like your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Pastor Kyle, would you come? After Pastor Kyle comes, I just have a few announcements to share with you.